right. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. Before anybody asks, yes, I am chewing on something. I have a throat lozenge in. Anybody here afraid to either clear your throat or cough in public anymore? I'm not dying. It's okay. But yeah, so, <clears throat> throat lozenge. Anyway, um, welcome, everybody. Guys, glad that you're here. I'm excited to get a chance to share God's word with you, um, more so than, not more so than often, because I'm always excited. I am always excited. I, I've, I spend probably on average eight to ten hours preparing a message. A lot of that, my best thinking seems to be done at night, so a lot of times, this week, no exception, I'm here until, until midnight and sometimes beyond writing a message. And the reason I know that it's something I'm called to do and it's something that God wants me to do is oftentimes I'll glance up at the clock and go, it's two minutes until midnight. If I leave now, I can say I didn't spend the night over here. I just lose track of time. And it's hard to imagine myself, me, myself, thinking of my teenager self or my even 20 years ago self being so excited about studying something that is all about pain and perseverance and suffering and trial. And I would just like, can we just skip all of that? But it's so exciting. And the reason it's exciting to me is because we know, we've been taught and Scripture says that the Word of God is alive and active and useful and, and, it, and it's so useful for guiding us through everything. But when we look around at what's going on in the world today, Really, it's no different than has gone on throughout the history of time. The things are different. The circumstances are different. But what we go through now, the doubts that we have, the pain that we have, the things that happen to us are really no different than it's always been ever since the first human being was placed here on this earth. When I hear that worship song, the last one, there was a line through it that just stuck in me. Um, I feel the joy in every battle because I know that's where you'll be. If you're here and you hear that and you go, yeah, that's me. When I enter a battle, I do it with joy because I know I'm going to meet God there. Congratulations, that's where you should be. But if we're going to be real, most of us probably aren't there. We'll be like, I see a battle coming up. If there's any way I can go around this or avoid it, but if I have to... I'm just going to grit my teeth and go through it. That's the way I think most of us, if we're honest, would probably approach a battle. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not, not seeing it with joy because we know we're going to meet God there. Even Job. that We're going to talk about Job. We're going to talk about two chapters of Job today. We're going to talk about chapter 16 and 17. That's a lot to go through. That's a lot to go through. And I'll kind of lay the groundwork here in a second. But when you look at this, Job is, a, is considered a hero of the Bible because he could do that. Because he can see all these things going on. I don't understand it. I have no idea why this is happening, and, and it sucks. Job, I don't think, is going, oh, I'm having joy in my suffering. We can clearly see that Job knows this is not good. And yet, in the midst of all that, and we'll see this beautiful moment in this scripture here where he just he just comes to this realization that I love God and I trust in God. And so we're going to talk about that as we go through. But he's considered a hero because he was able to do that 
without the benefit of thousands of years of hindsight and without the scriptures to look at and without the Holy Spirit that we have, all these tools, all these things that we have available to us to help us face life that way, he was able to do that without any of that benefit. And in spite of his friends constantly attacking him, and that's basically the story of Job, his friends constantly attacking him. So if you're out there and you're watching us maybe online or you're here and you haven't been kind of keeping up, you can either go back on the, on the web player or through uh, YouTube and get our back episodes or episodes, back messages and catch up on where we are. But just a quick, super tall overview here. Job, book opens up. God says, Job is a good guy. God affirms that in Job's life. God is, Job is successful. He's well-liked. He's honest. He's a family man. He is, he is just a stand-up guy, and God recognizes that. And because God recognizes that, he shoves him out into the pathway of this speeding truck that is Satan and his plans. Does that sound like something God would do? It wouldn't to me, but in essence, that's what happened. Job, and I had this conversation between services. Satan didn't come, grab Job by the neck and say, can I have him, God? That's how many of us understand the story of Job. In fact, God saw Job and said, you know what? I'm going to use him because I know that he can stand it. I know what kind of a guy he is. I know his character. And better yet, I know what the outcome of this is, is going to be. Hey, Satan, come here. I got a challenge for you. And he presents Job to Satan. Now, is that the way we would typically think? A good, loving God is going to take me, minding my own business, doing the right things, and he's going to throw me into the path of danger? It doesn't seem like the God that I would know and trust, but that's exactly what happened. And that's why Scripture is here, to help us understand that. So that's the scene in heaven. They have this... this this challenge, basically, where God is presenting Job to Satan and saying, have your way. Satan says, okay, I know he's going to crack if I pressure him enough. The thing is, though, Job doesn't know about any of that. All Job knows, Job doesn't see what's happening behind the scenes. All he knows is that he's doing the right thing, and then one day, and in one day, Everything is taken away from him, and he ends up on the, on the trash heap outside of town just suffering. And he's left to try and reconcile, why did this happen to me? Now, to double down on that, his friends come from out of nowhere. His friends come from, from wherever they are, not nowhere. But they come to him, and the idea is they're going to comfort him. But what they do is that they just start battering him with their ideas of what went wrong and how he's got to fix it. Anybody have a friend like that? I can't fix you, but I can tell you what you did wrong. I know what I did wrong. I'm the one that's here. But in Job's case, he doesn't have that even. He doesn't know what he did wrong. And they're just beating on him. So that's where we are basically in a snapshot here. But it's Job's turn to respond. Last week, Eliphaz, one of his friends, kind of the second round of attacks on him, really ran out of things to say, ran out of concrete accusations or anything to really to say. So he just turns to character assassination and just starts generally assaulting Job and his character. And more than that, guilt by association, he, he just says, Job, all humans are bad. Would we agree? 
okay? All humans are flawed. All humans are sinful. Sure, you're a human too. Therefore, you're sinful and you're flawed. That's his reasoning. Might be true, but not super helpful in this case. What we see now for the next two chapters is Job responding back to that attack. And it is, it is amazing. This, these two chapters, they're, they're so filled with just genuine raw pain that Job is experiencing. And in the midst, in the middle, the worst of that pain that he's experiencing, this anguish, he's crying out to God. And then he stops and he has this beautiful moment of reflection where he just says, God, I know you're good. And I don't get any of this. I don't even like any of this. But I know that you're good. And that is something that is so far beyond my mind to see what's happening to him and try and think, would I do that? Is that how I'd respond? So let's get into it. And let's see how he does and and let's see what we can learn from this. So, again, we're covering two chapters today. Now, quick word on that. We're going to talk a little bit about how to decipher this. When we read a lot of scripture, especially some of this Old Testament stuff, and in Job, a lot of it is written in an old form of poetry that is, even the language is obscure, and it's hard to translate, and it's hard to understand. I'm going to give you a couple of tricks to try and help us figure that out, and stuff that you can apply in, in your studies anytime. I like to try and take things that are difficult and make it clear for us to understand. Um, if I can just do that and get you to be able to read the Bible and understand the flow and, and learn from it, um, then, then I would be happy. But so two chapters. Now, remember, when the Bible was canonized, canonized means when it was put into its final form, bound with numbers and chapter numbers and designations on it. Um, when that happened, they just had a whole bunch of scrolls or they had sheets of papyrus or various things. And, and they would read these letters. And rather than to just put it out there, like here's the entirety of Paul's letter, they broke it into chapter and verse to help us be able to go back and say, okay, in, in the book of Job, chapter 17, verse 1, and we could all find that versus having to, it's, it's where Job says, my spirit is broken. Okay, where is that? And you're trying to figure it out. That's what happened back then. So you end up with things like 16 and 17, these two chapters in Job, that are really, it's just one thought. It's just Job's Job's response to what's going on here. So we take those two chapters in their entirety, and that's what we're studying here today. It's one continuous thought. So given that, there's a lot of meat in there. So we've got to take a step back even further and figure out how are we going to attack this, how are we going to look at it so that we can pull out really what the meaning is. That's what we want to do, is pull out the meaning of a passage and, and make it clear. So, going all the way back to week five, if, if you were with us then, you probably remember this. If not, you can go back and check it out again on our, on our platforms. In week five, I taught a little bit about the various genres that the Bible is written in and how understanding what genres are and understanding what genre your particular scripture you're studying is written in, that will help you understand its meaning. And what I mean by genres, genres are different methods or different ways that literature in general, the Bible is a piece of literature, that all literature is, is written in and is subject to and is identified by, and it helps us to understand. In, in the case of Scripture, all different genres were used to help make God's point in the way that he thought was best to do that. And what 
So you can't read, say, a history book. You can't read a history book or maybe a textbook from school. You can't read that the same way you would read a fiction novel. Okay? I mean, the words in English or whatever language, they're the same, right? But you, you wouldn't have the same expectations. You're reading a, a, a fiction novel, and your hero jumps off a building, a 10-story building, and falls down and lands in the seat of his car and speeds away. Okay? In a fiction novel, you just go, okay, I'm going to suspend my disbelief and just roll with it, right? If it were a history book that said that, you'd go, yeah, I don't know. Did that really happen? So you have to have a different mindset. You wouldn't read your car owner's manual the same way that you'd read a comic book or some other kind. You need to be aware of those. So I'm going to give you just a quick overview of the genres that are in Scripture. And there are several of them, and some of them kind of cross over. But in general, here we are. We have a narrative, the narrative genre. Narrative, it just it tells a story. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Kings, those all tell a story of, of a thing that or things that happened. Then there's the law books. So there's Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, those thou shalt or thou shalt not. It's pretty straightforward if you read that. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. Those are pretty straightforward. And then there's the epistles. The epistles are letters, okay? Those are Romans, Galatians, all those sorts of, of things. And it's a letter written to somebody or a, a group of people for a particular reason. So we read those that way as a letter that somebody would write to you. It might, be, might have some hyperbole in it, some flowery language, um, but it's going to be, here's what I want you to know. Then we have wisdom literature. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, it, it, it's, it's general wisdom, and we read it that way. It's, it's suggestions, good ways to live your life from God. Then there's prophetic. So all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the different prophets, they're, they're giving prophecy. And we have to see that as prophecy. So when, he, when any of the prophets say things like, if you do this, rain will come down from heaven and, you know, fire rain and burn your, your village, that doesn't mean it's going to happen that day or that moment. And in many cases, we'd see hundreds or even thousands of years between a prophetic statement and the actual fulfillment of that. Doesn't make it any less true or accurate, but you have to read it with this understanding that if, if, prophet, if a prophet says it's going to happen, it might not be that day. It might be a while. Then there's apocalyptic literature. Daniel, Revelation talks about the end times or the consummation of things. And then the last one, more significant for us, is poetry. There's poetry, so Psalms. Song of Solomon, Lamentations, and the book of Job for us. They're written generally in poetry. Now, Job is kind of a mix. The first and last parts of it are more of a narrative. Um, but we need to understand that Job is in general written in a poetic form, and an ancient type of poetic form to be clear on that. So the story is hard enough to follow with the thoughts that go through it, without even trying to factor in this ancient poetic form and, and, and the style that it's written in. So what we have to do is we have to go even further. How do we pull out from this scripture really what the point of it is? And so I'm going to share something with you. It'll, it'll help you kind of see that. And you can apply that in a lot of different uh, ways. I'll talk about that in a minute. So we're going to look at Job chapter, uh, chapter 16, verses 1 through 22 and Job 17, 1 through 16. So if you add that up, that's 38 verses. That's, that's a lot 
to get in there. And if you read it, just quick overview, it starts out with Job saying, this is terrible, it hurts, it's terrible, it hurts. In the middle, he's got another statement. And in the bottom, it's terrible, it hurts, it's terrible, it hurts. There's the overall snapshot of this section. But right in the middle is this great place, and we'll talk in depth about it when we get there, about where he just gives this great statement of faith in God. And you might be thinking, is he schizophrenic or is he wavering that badly to where he's talking about how terrible things are, but God's good, but things are terrible? It's a specific form, and that's what it's important for us to know. The specific form that these chapters and much of Job, a lot of Psalms, uh, shout out to you ladies in the, in the women's Bible study because you're looking through this, and a lot of the Psalms use this form called chiasmus. Spelled chiasmus, but it's chiasmus. Any English lit majors out there who know what chiasmus is? Out there online, anybody? All right, good. I got you all where I want you. Nobody has any clue what I'm talking about. Some of you are dozing off already. Some of you are like, I didn't come for school. So you're either really intrigued or you're really sleepy, one of the two right now. Stay with me. Stay with me. I'm going to show you something that I think is really cool, and I hope you find the same in it. So the word chiasmus comes from the Greek word chi, C-H-I. And who knows the symbol for chi in Greek? It's an X. Right, symbol for chi is an X. And it's what it means in, in our terms for chiasmus, it means a crossover and a reversal. So you take a thought and you reverse it and cross it over and another one, reverse crossover. I'll show you what that looks like. So what it looks like, ideas, whether it's just a sentence or an entire chapter or a book, they are repeated in a specific pattern. I'll show you what that looks like. Here's a little screen, a little picture of a statement that might help us with that. Like the, okay, so this is just one statement, very simple. Do I love you because you're beautiful or are you beautiful because I love you? It's the same idea. It's not the same exact words, but it's the same thought. Do I love you because you're beautiful or are you beautiful because I love you? So they took the same thing and they twisted them backwards to make their point. It's a specific poetic style. And we see that. Now, again, shout out to the ladies' uh, Bible studies because they're talking about this right now. Other interesting thing, I talked to Pastor Craig this morning in the youth, and they are talking about how to study this now. We didn't coordinate this. Actually, poetry is next week in youth. They study some hardcore things there in our youth. They're not just over there playing games. Um, but shout out to them and to, and to the women. Let me give you a diagram. This is going to feel even more like school. This is a diagram, and hopefully you can read it. If not, it's not so important. The words will help you. This is a diagram of what the chiasmus in these two chapters looks like. It starts out with a specific pattern. So chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, I call that A, is Job's complaint against his friends and his lament. That's a section, not a specific verse, but it's a section. Then it goes from to uh, chapter 16, verse 6 through 14, and that's B, prayer and complaint to God. Then chapter 16, verses 15, 17, is Job's lament. Then, and our key for all this, chapter 16, verses 18 to 21, is D, Job's statement of faith. Then, as you can see, or as you can't see, it reverses. Then it goes back to that section of lament, 
Another section, prayer and complaint to God. Another section, a complaint against his friends and more lament. This is to help us understand. Now, in this form of chiasmus, what we do is we, we don't ignore all the other stuff, but we know that both the front end and the back end are pointing towards that key theme, that key idea that's right in the middle. And in this case, it's chapter 16, verses 18 to 21. I call it Job's statement of faith. The rest is a poetic device. So we're going to look at the individual words, but it's pointing us to that nugget that's right in the middle. So that's what we want to look at. Here's how that passage reads. We'll look at it more, but I'll read it to you now. Job chapter 16, verses 18 to 21, reads like this. Earth, do not cover my blood, and may there be no resting place for my cry. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. My friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God, that one might plead for a man with God as a son of man with his neighbor. All right, so you might be looking at that and going, oh, that's the nugget that I'm supposed to pull out of this? Let's look at it in context. We'll kind of, we'll pull out the meaning here because I think it's so critically important for us today. So remember, Job is replying to his friend's Eliphaz attack, okay, it's basically his character assault, and he's applying back, uh, he's replying back to that. So here we go, up on screen, we have some of these. Job 16, verses 1 and 2. Then Job responded, I have heard many things like these. Miserable comforters are you all. He's saying, yeah, I know that. You guys are terrible friends. Job 16, verses 3 and 4 says, Is there no end to windy words or what provokes you that you answer? I too could speak like you if only I were in your place. I would compose words against you and shake my head against you. Job 16, 5. Or... I could strengthen you with my mouth, and the condolence of my lips could lessen your pain. He's saying, if things were reversed, I would treat you a heck of a lot better than you're treating me now. Now he switches to that second, that second stage, prayer in the form, in this case, it's in the form of a complaint to God. He's speaking both about God and to God. Remember, he's in this unusual place where this pain and suffering he's going through is caused by the only one that can help him with it. The one who his complaint is against is also the judge. That's an odd place for him to be. So you see his language go back and forth. Job 16.6, if I speak, my pain is not lessened, and if I refrain, what pain leaves me? He's saying, what do I have to lose by speaking out? I'm, I'm dead either way. I'm suffering either way. So he gets into it, Job 16, 7. But now he has exhausted me. There he's talking about he, God, has exhausted me. And then he turns to God and goes, you have laid waste all my group of loved ones. And basically he's saying, he's saying you win, God. I'm exhausted. You've wiped out my family. Everything is gone. You win. So can we talk? Job 16, 8. And you have shriveled me up. It has become a witness, and my infirmity rises up against me and testifies to my face. He's saying, look at my face. Just look at my skin. I'm all shriveled up. I'm a, I'm a shadow of what I used to be. I'm exhausted, sick, and beaten down. That's where I am. Job 16, 9. His anger has torn me and hunted me down. He gnashed his teeth at me. He gnashed at me with his teeth. My enemy 
glares at me. He calls God his enemy right there. That word torn where it says his anger has torn is a Hebrew word, taraf. And taraf literally means to tear and shred. It's a picture of what a lion does with its prey. Just shred it and tear and tear off chunks to give to, to, give to its offspring to eat. That's a picture of what Job thinks and perceives that God is doing to him. It is, it is a terrible place that Job finds himself in. Job 16, verses 10 through 11. They have gaped at me. Now he's talking about his friends now. They have gaped at me with their mouths. They have slapped me on the cheek with contempt. They have massed themselves against me. God hands me over to criminals and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. Now, remember, he's, he's talking to God about his friends, but his friends are right there. They got to be like, um, Job, you know we can hear you, right? when he's talking about them like this. Some translations, by the way, uh, instead of the word criminals, hands me over to criminals, they, it inserts the word ungodly. Okay, some translations say that. It's actually the word avil, and it means unjust. So that's who he's saying, God hands me over to those people, and they're ungodly, they're unjust. Why would you do that? Job 16, verses 12 to 14 now. I'll just read this to you. I was at ease, but he shattered me. And he has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. His arrows surround me. He splits my kidneys open without mercy. He pours out my bile on the ground. He he breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. This is how Job is perceiving God's attack on him. That is a terrible place for him to be. And the only one that can save him again is the one doing it. What a place of confusion and just an utter pain that he's feeling right now, which brings us to the next section, which is Job's lament. A lot of times we'll kind of throw out that word lament like like it's not a big deal. a, A true lament, which is what Job is doing here, is the deepest kind of sorrow that a human can experience. So to kind of put maybe some context, have you ever... This isn't going to be fun, but think about, has there ever been a time in your life where you were hurt so badly by anything, not physical hurt, heart hurt, that your chest felt tight, that your chest just hurt, and that you could hardly even form words, and what you did just came out in a groan, an ugly cry, you would call it. Your nose is running. There's not enough Kleenex to stop that, and frankly, you don't care about that. It just hurts so badly. Channel that memory. That's where Job is right now. That's where Job is as he goes through this. Job 16, verses 15 to 17 says, I have sewed sackcloth over my skin and thrust my horn in the dust. It's it's an Old Testament picture of, of just mourning and anguish. My face is flushed from weeping and deep darkness is on my eyelids, although there's no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. He's saying, all these things are happening, I'm, I'm weeping, I'm crying, but my prayer is still pure, and I haven't hurt anybody, and I haven't done anything. Here's what he doesn't have. Have you ever had something happen to you, something bad, and you've said to yourself, I had it coming? I have. Probably most of us have at one point or another. Maybe not as bad as Job, but every now and then, we'll do something, and we go, I knew that was a mistake when I did it. 
And right now I'm kind of reaping what I've sowed. I had it coming. In a way, it doesn't lessen the, the severity of what's happening to you, but in a way, it's comforting to know that what I'm going through right now, I caused it. I brought it on myself. And I'm reaping that. That is in some ways comforting to know. And it gives us a little bit of resolve, like, I had it coming, so I'm just going to grip my teeth and take it, and I'll do better next time. Job doesn't have that. He doesn't have that to fall back on, go, well, I had it coming, so as soon as I get through this, I'll do better next time. He doesn't have that. All he's got is pain and confusion, and in that pain and confusion, he prays these prayers of desperation and these prayers of anguish, and I want to submit to you that our prayers that we pray in those times of desperation and those times of anguish might be the most honest prayers that we ever pray. We get rid of all the flowery language, all of the other things, and we just say, God, I need you. So to recap, the first 17 verses, quick recap. I'm just going to hit these like eight bullet points. First of all, you, my friends, have been terrible to me. You turned on me as soon as I didn't say what you wanted. I would never treat you like that. What have I got to lose? God, you win. You've beaten me up, worn me down, shredded me, but you're the only one I can turn to for help. And I'm crying out in prayers of desperation. That's where Job is. Try and imagine that time and place where Job is in this. The only one that can help is the one that's causing this pain. And in the midst of all this, this confusion and this pain he's going through, he, he comes out with this most heartfelt, beautiful statement of faith in God. The question I asked last service is, in the middle of our doubts and confusion and maybe anger sometimes, frustration towards God, do we resort to other things to save us? In other words, if we come to the end, I've prayed, I've prayed, I've prayed, it's not working, so now I'm going to set that aside and I'm going to double down on my outside efforts. I'm going to try and find more worldly help or figure it out on my own. Or do we do like Job does here and Job just doubles down his faith in God? It's a beautiful thing to see. I'm going to walk you through it here. Job 16, verse 18. Earth, do not cover my blood, and may there be no resting place for my cry. What he's saying here is I don't want the evidence of the crime to be covered up. I know I'm innocent, and I don't want the evidence to be covered up by, by dirt. I don't want my blood to be washed away, and I don't want my voice to be silenced. That is, that's the actions in the statement of somebody who knows that they are right. Have you ever talked to somebody and asked, did you do that thing? And they go, no, I didn't do that thing. You know, they kind of voice trails off, and they just as soon, like, change the subject, and can we move on to something else? Job doesn't do that. He goes, nah, I don't want to move on. I don't want evidence of this suffering and all that to go away because I want my case to be heard. And he knows it will be. Instead of being ashamed of his, of his affliction and what's going on, he says, before man and God, I want everybody to hear and to see what's going on here. Job 16, 19. 
even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. That statement is amazing because Job had no way to know or even grasp the idea that an intercessor was coming. We have the hindsight, the benefit of knowing Jesus is that intercessor. Job didn't have that. He didn't have any context for knowing that. And in his mind, again, the one doing to him was also his judge and was also his accuser. As far as he knew, this was all, but then he was the only one that could save him. And he's just praying that there's got to be a way. So he had no way to know that an intercessor was to come, but he knew, here's what he knew, there had to be one. Because he knew above all else, he couldn't understand anything else, but he knew that God was just and God was merciful and God was good. And despite the fact that none of these circumstances lined up with that, he knew that God would make a way. That's why I consider Job just such a hero of the Bible because he knew. He didn't know what the way was. He didn't know what was going to come, but he knew that God was so good there had to be a way. He didn't even care that he didn't know what that way was, but he was expressing this sureness that, that his current pain and his friends couldn't steal from him. Job 16, 20, my friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God. He's saying essentially men may condemn me, but they are not my judge. God is my judge, and I know that a merciful God will hear my pleas. In the midst of all this pain, he is so certain of God's goodness. Job 16, 21, that one might plead for a man with God as a son of man with his neighbor. So again, Job is praying that someone is going to plead his case before God, specifically a son of man. Now we know, we hear that phrase son of man, and we, and we fast forward to what we know that Jesus is called the son of man quite often. He didn't have any recollection or knowledge or anything of Jesus. That son of man, it's a Hebrew word, and it literally the word is Adam. And it's a foreshadowing for us. We can look back See, that's a foreshadowing of Jesus, not only in his role as an intercessor, but as Adam, as the son of man. Things that Job had no way of knowing. Job doesn't know any details about this intercessor, but by faith, he knows that there has to be one. He's in that place where he just knows there has to be one. Church, we're in a place where we know there is one. And we know that we, if we accept him, we can trust in him and that he has paid that price. And yet, sometimes we live our life like that didn't happen. Like we're back in Job where we're just trying to reconcile. But what Job knows, he knows there has to be a way, though he's got no clue what it is. And that, church, that is the definition of faith. We see in Scripture, it actually defines what faith is. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Faith is the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. Job hoped, but he was certain that there was an intercessor. There was someone to plead his case before God, and he knew it, and he was sure of it. And that's what faith is. We had no context to understand it. So after that, after that, that high, he builds from this place of pain and treachery from his friends, and I don't understand. He builds up to this place where he says, you know what? I don't even need to understand because 
I know you, God. And none of it makes sense, but I don't even care anymore because I know that you'll make a way. And I don't know what it is, and it's probably going to be painful to get there, but I know there's a way. And now he switches back. Now, it's not him, like you might say, is he schizophrenic? Did he waver? And now he's going back downhill again? He's, he's spiraling. No, it's that, it's that poetic device where it goes, now we repeat the first half, the ideas and the thoughts as we finish up. So in the reverse order of the chiasmus, uh, we start with this lament. So Job 17.1, my spirit is broken, my days are extinguished, the grave is ready for me. Then he goes into the second round, the second prayer and complaint to God, Job 17.3. Make a pledge with me for your, make a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? So he knows, again, he knows there's going to be one on his behalf, but he wants to hear God say it. Finally, he gets into this, the more complaint against his friends and this final lament, Job 17.10. But come again, all of you now, for I don't find a wise man among you. Saying, come on, I, I know you guys aren't finished yet. Come on and hit me with some more. I know none of you are wise. Job 17, 15, 16. Where then is my hope? And who looks at my hope? Will it go down to me with Shoal? Shall we together go down into the dust? Remember, Shoal is that place. He didn't know heaven or hell or anything in between. All he knew, everybody, when you die, you go to Shoal. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, where's my hope? Will my hope just die with me? But again, we go back to that very center part where he is certain that an intercessor is going to come and he doesn't understand it. He's got no context for it, but he knows that God is going to make a way and he doesn't need to understand it. So as I wrap all this up, we're never, we are never anywhere in Scripture promised that we are going to understand and agree with all the ways of God. There's plenty of scripture that tells us that the Holy Spirit in us testifies to the things of God, and we have ways, but we are not ever going to understand God's mind. There's not a way to do that. We will never understand God's mind. We're given books like Job and many others to help us understand that God is good, God is merciful, God is loving, but he's also just. And we help to paint this picture then of who God is. Job didn't even have scripture to look at. We are now, though, given glimpses from time to time of the way it will work, things to come. That time when we will truly understand God and his, and his heart for us. But for now, it's all kind of muddled through, through our flesh, frankly. We're given glimpses. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. I'm going to read this section to you. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. It's a familiar passage to a lot of you. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. The then and now he's talking about now is here on earth. The then is there in heaven. And only when we get to that point will that mirror be clean enough that we can see. Puzzling reflections in a mirror. We have an idea of what we think we know, but it's incomplete. At the same time, though, we're also promised 
that we can't possibly understand all of the ways of God. Now, I mean, not at the same time Paul wrote to the Corinthians or even now, but all the way back even before that, Isaiah, Isaiah 55, 8, 9. You might remember this verse, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts, his ways are so much higher than we will ever be able to understand, but we can understand his heart. Can't understand his methods or his ways, we can understand his heart. And really, it's a spirit of pride in us that makes us think that we even have a right to understand. We understand exactly what God wants us to know. We're given scripture, we're given the Holy Spirit, all those things to help us understand those things that God wants us to know. But we will never know everything, nor do we need to. It's that same spirit of pride that helps us think, that makes us think that we have a right to certain things here today. In our life today, like I have a right to have politics go the way I think they should go. I have a right to a certain lifestyle. I have a right to certain things. And it's a spirit of pride that makes us think that we have that right. We're never, ever promised that life will be smooth sailing. In fact, just the opposite. If you remember in John 16, Jesus says, I've spoken these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take courage, I've overcome the world. That's what we can rely on today, and that is a promise from God that Job didn't have. We knew. Job knew that there had to be a way. We know the way. We know what that way was, and that's in Jesus. In a world where instant gratification and our need to know has really kind of become an idol. I told a story last, last service. Remember, when I was young, those of you who are my age or older might be familiar with this, when I wanted to know something, I had to either find a friend who knew the answer to that, if it wasn't mom or dad, find somebody who knew, or I had to go to the library. I had to wait until the library was open. I had to physically go there, go through the card catalogs, find a subject, pull out two or three books, hoping that these ran- the, the card catalog didn't have your answer on it. It had where you can find your answer, hopefully. You go through three or four or a stack of books to try and find the answer to your, or more often what I did is just went, I guess I don't know that. And I just let it go. But back then, you had to make a choice. If I want to know this, I have to go search for it and I have to go dig. Now, every one of us in our hands or nearby has a device capable of pulling up the sum total of all the knowledge that humans have acquired from the beginning of time. We no longer have a reason to not know even the most trivial things. And we have decided somehow that we should also then have a right to know the thoughts of God. You can't Google the thoughts of God. Actually, you can, and it comes up with some scripture on how you can't know the thoughts of God. (laughs) Try it. I did it. Job understood this. Above all else, Job understood this. He had no right to understand. And that gave him a peace and a comfort and an ability to go through stuff that I don't know that I could go through. 
and he went through it. And he went through it maintaining his integrity and his right standing with God. That's what he understood. In his time of worst trial and pain, he chose to double down and trust in God. Church, that's where I want to be. He chose to have faith, and that's what I want to do. One last scripture, just a short one I want to share with you. The rock that we can stand on is this, Psalm 18.2. A lot of you might be familiar with that. I think we have it, yep. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my savior, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That's what Job knew. Job didn't understand what was going on. He understood far less than we did, than we do today. And we still don't even touch the surface of God's thoughts. But he knew, stand on the Lord. And that's the rock that we can stand on. And that's what I choose today. In the midst of all this storm, that's where I get my peace. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you have given us your word. You have given us your spirit. You have given us everything that we need to know your heart. And so if we can't understand what happens, Lord, I repent of my need to understand. I repent of my, uh, of my feeling that I have a right to understand your ways. God, the only thing I want to understand is your heart and your heart for me. And your heart for me, your heart for us has never changed. Your promises for us have never changed. And so in light of the things going on in the world, Lord, I repent of ever doubting your purposes and your ways. And Lord, help me to stand on the rock of who you are. Father, help me to navigate this world in this day in peace because of who you are, not because of who I am. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Hey, if you're at home, we're going to take communion together now. If you're at home, grab some elements. If you're here and you grabbed them on the way in, great. If not, there's still time. You can go back at that back table there. We take communion every time we get together. And I don't want it to ever become a religious act. That's why I don't often quote a lot of scriptures or worse yet, the same scripture every time. Because although it's significant, I don't ever want it to be something that we just, now's the time when we do that. As you take the body of Christ, I want you to be intentional about understanding what it means. The body of Christ is more than a slice of pizza or a bagel or a piece of pressed, whatever that is. It represents the body of Christ given for you to be broken on the cross, to take the punishment that we all deserve so that we don't have to. And taking it is an acceptance of what he did. In the blood of Christ, Jesus himself says, it's the blood of the new covenant poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And when we take it, when we take the blood, we are saying, I accept what you did for me. And when we live our lives like he didn't do that, then what's the point of accepting what he did? If we live our lives like I somehow have to figure it out, then we're living our lives like he didn't do that for us. He reconciled us to the Father, giving us his Holy Spirit through what he did on the cross. And when you take this, you agree not only with what he did, but you agree to accept that and live your life that way. Take the blood.
Lord, we thank you for your goodness this day and every day. Let us live our lives knowing that you gave it all for us. Amen. Thank you, guys.